How a bank robbery gave birth to Stockholm Syndrome. Hello everybody, welcome to the very first episode of The Brink, the newsletter that demystifies what goes on inside our heads. If you like the audio version of the newsletter, please do subscribe to it over on Spotify, and while you're at it, tell a friend, family member, or even a complete stranger, because every little helps. Now then, back to the podcast. There's an odd anniversary being discussed in mental health circles this week. It's been 50 years since the inception of the term Stockholm Syndrome. That's odd, you might think. Who is blowing out candles to celebrate half a century of a term describing how relationships develop between a hostage and their captors? Not many, but a few keen-eyed observers saw it in their psychology calendars, and I've been digging about in the archives to see if there's anything new we might learn. And this week, I'm going to be doing something similar. I'm going to be looking at how a bank robbery gave birth to one of the strangest phenomenons in our understanding of how people cope with stressful experiences. First, it's important to define what we mean by Stockholm Syndrome, as it has been used to define relationships that thankfully don't fit the true definition. Hollywood, for example, has a weird fascination with this idea and it's popped up in all kinds of strange places. Stockholm Syndrome officially refers to the bond that can develop between hostages and their captors in hostage-taking and kidnapping situations. In some cases, hostages may develop sympathies for their captors and their cause, and even turn against the police and the people trying to help them. Rather than a diagnosis of a disorder, experts describe it as a psychological coping mechanism used by some hostages who endure being held captive and abused. Now, when you read that out loud, it seems like an oddly specific definition for an oddly specific experience. That's because it was based on a singular event that took place in Stockholm, Sweden, in 1973. Jan-Erik Olsen was a 32-year-old man that hadn't had much luck in life. Born in Ekeby, a small village in southern Sweden with a Wikipedia page containing just 17 words, Olsen had fallen into a life of crime. We meet him during a three-year jail sentence for burglary. During that time, he became friends with Clark Olofsson, a serial bank robber whose string of creative prison escapes had made him a virtual celebrity in Sweden. Olsen, by all accounts, was well-behaved in jail, so much so He was released on a temporary furlough in August 1973 for good behaviour. He was supposed to come back to jail, but never did. Instead, a few days after his release, he put on a woman's curly wig, blue-tinted sunglasses, a dyed black moustache and rouged cheeks, walked into a Stockholm bank shortly after it opened on August 23, 1973, fired a submachine gun into the air and yelled, In English with an American accent, the party begins! Olsen had become famous, but not for the reason he first thought. After Olsen's somewhat bizarre entrance into the bank, he took the employees hostage, kickstarting what would become a six-day siege. His demands? He wanted three million Swedish kroner, about $700,000 at the time, and a fast getaway plan. Plus, he wanted to be reunited with his old mate, Clark Olofsson, the high-profile escape artist he had met in jail. I believed a maniac had come into my life. 
The then 23-year-old bank clerk, Kristin Enmark, later told reporters, I believed I was seeing something that could only happen in America. Enmark had good reason to be scared. Olsen was armed to the teeth. In addition to the machine gun he had procured, he'd also brought reserve ammunition, plastic explosives, blasting caps, safety fuses, lengths of rope, a knife, wool socks, sunglasses, two walkie-talkies, and a transistor radio. Soon afterwards, he tied up four of the bank employees and put them all in the vault, where he felt police wouldn't risk an intervention through fear of wounding one of his hostages. Shortly afterwards, Olsen turned on his radio to listen out for any police chatter and waited. Within 24 hours, Olsen had become international news. He had shot a police officer in the hand and forced law enforcement to acquiesce to his requests. A Ford Mustang was delivered, along with the money he demanded, and even his friend Olufsen. But there was something missing. The police had delivered the car, but they hadn't included the keys. Olsen was annoyed, but Olufsen appeared to calm things down. When I came, they were terrified, Olufsen said in 2019 on the podcast Criminal. After five minutes, they were cool. I said, hey, take it easy. We're going to fix this. Olufsen untied the three women and walking around the bank for surveillance, found another employee, Sven Safstrom, 24, hiding in a stock room. Safstrom would go on to become the fourth hostage in the siege. Over the next five days, something strange started to happen. The captors and the captees became close. The former kept them comfortable and listened to their needs, and the latter happily did what the hostage-takers asked. I fully trust Clark and the robber. I am not desperate. They haven't done anything to us, Enmark said during a phone call to the Swedish Prime Minister, Olaf Prime, while inside the vault. On the contrary, they have been very nice. But you know, Olaf, what I am scared of is that the police will attack and cause us to die, she told the PM. The fear the police would do something stupid wasn't without merit. During the course of the siege, they had snuck in and locked the hostage and their captors inside the vault, depriving them of access to the real world. They also bungled several attempts to gain access to the bank, and the Prime Minister insisted the Swedish government didn't negotiate with criminals. Shortly after the phone call, police started drilling holes above the vault. Many hostages believed the police would tear gas them and their captives, fearing the confined space would eventually kill them. During that time, Olsen and Olofsson became closer to their victims, giving them the lion's share of the meagre food they had and trying to make them feel as comfortable as possible. They traded stories about their lives. They became close. The police had asked, meanwhile, Niels Bejero, a local psychiatrist, to consult on what was going through the minds of the hostages at the time. He believed a bond of friendship would form, so much so it would prevent Olsen from inflicting harm on his captors. But it went so much further than that. On day six, police did drop gas into the vault through those drilled holes, and Olsen and Olsen finally decided to give up. But after the vault doors were already opened, something strange happened. The police ordered the hostages out first, but they refused. Fearful that Olsen and Olufsen would be killed by the police if they were left alone in the vault. During these tense moments, Enmark and another hostage hugged and kissed Olsen, while another shook his hand and the fourth asked him to write to her. Only then did the hostages emerge, with the captives alongside them. 
But the bond didn't stop there. Later on, none of them would testify against either Olsen or Olufsen in court. Instead, they actually began raising money for their defence. Bejero, the consulting psychiatrist, told police and reporters that the hostages had in some way been brainwashed by their captives, who appeared to skillfully manipulate their captors into becoming human shields. Brainwashing was a wildly popular term during the Cold War, thanks in part to the release of George Orwell's best-selling novel 1984 and its reference to washing the brain clean. It was only after the victims spoke about their experience that Stockholm experience would develop its distinct flavour. Bejero thought this theory wouldn't go very far, however. He thought it was a neat summary to an unusual event and nothing more. But a year later, it would hit the headlines again. Patty Hearst, the granddaughter of publisher William Randolph Hearst, was taken and held hostage by the Symbionese Liberation Army, an urban guerrilla group in 1974 in America. Hearst, it's argued, developed a similar bond with her captors and even helped them rob banks whilst in captivity. Upon her arrest in 1975, her lawyers argued she too had developed Stockholm Syndrome, but the term had not been considered an acceptable defence. Hearst was given seven years for the experience, but was later pardoned by Bill Clinton. Today, Stockholm Syndrome lives in a grey area. It's not formally recognised as a syndrome, and it has been criticised as a gendered term to undermine a woman's experience of being held captive. But Enmark, who left the bank and became a psychotherapist, said in 2016 that the hostage's relationship with Olsen was more self-preservation than syndrome. I think it was a way of blaming the victims, she said. All the things I did was an instinct of survival. I wanted to survive. I don't think that's odd. What would you do, she said. Stockholm Syndrome may have become a byword for a bad relationship, but its origins reveal something incredible about what goes on inside our heads during difficult experiences. To survive, those hostages had to do something they didn't think was possible. Befriend the man holding a gun to their heads. For the rest of us, it offers up a fascinating conundrum. What would you have done in the same situation? I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I loved making it. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe as it really helps. Thank you for listening. My name is Matt and I'll see you next week.